I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. A long time ago, when I was still very new to seminary, I was asked to give one of the talks at a program very much like Curcio. As part of our preparation for leading this renewal weekend, each of us had to rehearse our talk for the other members of the team. After I had rehearsed my talk, one of the ministers on the team looked at me and said, you gave a very good talk. I liked all of it, except the part where you talked about saints. I want you to take that part out. I don't believe in saints with a capital S. I thought at the time that he was in error in his disbelief. But since I was only a seminarian and he was ordained and on the board of ordained ministry, I took most of that part about the saints with a capital S out. Most of it. Not all of it. The minister's comment all those years ago has stayed with me, and every time that I preach on All Saints Day or I preach about on the feast day or commemoration of a saint, I think about it. What do we mean by making a distinction between saints with a capital S and saints with a small s? And should we be making that distinction at all? As good Episcopalians, we often speak freely of the capital S kinds of saints. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of course, and then others like St. Anne or Augustine or Joseph of Arimathea or Bartholomew. But as good Episcopalians, we also worry about worshiping the saints, making them into little gods and falling into error and superstition. We're still that Protestant after all. So what do we do with saints? Do we really need them? Or are they just convenient ways of naming churches? Is there anything about having saints with a capital S that is important to Christians and their salvation or to understanding how we are to live? To answer those questions, I think we need to look at what John sees in his vision of the worship of the heavenly hosts that we find in today's New Testament lesson from Revelation. In the middle of today's reading, one of the 24 elders seated before the throne of God and the Lamb turns to John and asks him a question. Do you know who this multitude of people are waving palm branches and singing to the Lamb? Who are these wearing white robes, and where did they come from? And John cannot answer, so the elder tells him, They are the ones who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Other translations say that they are the ones who have survived a time of great distress. In either case, the multitudes from every nation and people that John sees waving palm branches in heaven are not alive in the earthly sense. They have come, what they have come out of is a time of great persecution. Their faith survived intact, though they died rather than deny Christ. And their presence in the throne room of God is a sign that they have received the promised resurrection and live in the presence of God. The multitudes are dressed in white. 
And the elder tells John that they are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The image is counterintuitive, isn't it? Robes made white in blood certainly don't make sense. But these are robes of victory and purity, made white by the forgiveness of sins and the promise of resurrection that we are given by Christ from the cross and in his own resurrection. The multitudes are witnesses to the faith, martyrs, but that is what the word means in Greek, witness, who gave everything for their God, including their lives. John wrote his apocalypse sometime before the year 100, not very long after the Gospels were written. But by the time that John wrote, the word martyr or witness had already come to have a specific uh, meaning and understanding among the language of Christians. Martyr meant someone who had died rather than recant his or her faith and relationship with Christ. Being a martyr in the technical sense started with the Christians that Nero burned or blamed for the burning of Rome and whom in retaliation he burned as torches to light the streets of Rome. A martyr was a witness to the preciousness of the salvation promised by Christ and the need to live and die in the promise of that salvation, no matter what the cost. Within 70 years of the crucifixion and resurrection, there was too much about Christianity that threatened the prevailing order. Anyone could look ahead and see more trouble coming. Besides that, the Lord was expected to return soon. His return would establish the reign of God on earth and the return of Christ would surely be met with fearsome resistance from the forces that ruled the world. War, famine, disease, earthquakes, death would threaten all those who belonged to Christ. Christians had to be ready. Remaining faithful would be hard. Multitudes would be faced with the choice of their faith or death. And how would the church prepare except by remembering the stories of those who were already, had already been steadfast in their witness. As a sign of their victory, the steadfastness of their faith, these witnesses, these martyrs, would be privileged to join the worshiping multitude in heaven rather than waiting for the general resurrection at the time of the Lord's coming. The martyrs or the victors in faith would see God. The martyrs and witnesses of the church to which John was writing were living in the most powerful empire the world had ever known. Except on the very fringes of its world, it was an empire largely at peace, with a greater abundance of resources, especially food, and a more advanced technology that enabled construction of things that promised to stand forever and the diversity of peoples under one rule that was truly beyond anyone's imagining. To some, Rome and her emperor seemed to offer the world salvation. Now the world we live in is very different from the one the ancient Christians occupied. They were vulnerable and often lost their lives in defense of their faith. Christians had no political voice and they were not deluded into thinking or imagining that political decisions had a lasting 
eternal and universal significance. Their world was a difficult place to live, but it was also a place free of the confusion that you and I face. Because above all, the one thing that Christians knew then, and Christians should know now, is that no emperor or president, no empire or country, will ever save the world. We need to remember that. No matter what happens on Tuesday, no president is our savior. No president will take the place of our Father in heaven, and we will still be called to witness to the saving grace of the triune God. As Christians, we are paying way too much attention to politicians and politics. We would do well to remember that none of them created a single star or numbered the hairs on your head. We would also do well to remember that nothing in this world is permanent, neither our lives or the world that we created for ourselves. When St. John received the visions that are recorded in the book of Revelation, Rome was the greatest power on the planet, and Rome's greatest enemy, Persia, was the second greatest power. Both empires have vanished into the mists of time, along with many of the great cities and the civilizations that surrounded them. Does that imply, or would you understand me, or should you understand me to mean that we should not care about the way our country is governed or the effects that we have on the world around us? Should we not care if it feels as though we are watching our country and our culture dissolve around us? No, it, it doesn't imply that at all. What it means, though, is that we should never be so confused with the promises and actions of politicians and politics that it seems like the only thing that stands between us and the end of the world, as we know it, might be a politician. The one who, as the prophet Amos said, hung the Pleiades and Orion, who created the great Leviathan, who used empires and emperors for divine purposes, who made all things from nothing. That is the only one who deserves such allegiance from us. For the new Christians who were turned into human torches by Nero, who were sent to the Colosseum to fight wild beasts with bare hands and entertain the crowds with their bloody deaths, for the ones who lost family and property and identity and were driven out of the city to starve, there was no question where the ultimate allegiance belonged. But we find that very hard to remember. For example, what does it mean when, as Christian Republicans or Democrats, we often sound more like non-Christian Republicans or Democrats than we do like one another? We are all too happy to talk about where our party matches up with the gospel. But when it doesn't, well, that is too quickly deemed a part of the gospel that is old-fashioned and should be ignored or rewritten. And if that gamut doesn't work, then we play a game of whataboutism. Sure, our party has some failings and some quirks, but what about them? This, my brothers and sisters, is a scandal and it dishonors the memory of those saints with a capital S. 
It shows that our priorities are often more easily shaped by our partisan political commitments than by our faith. This, to put it in the very stark terms of the Bible, is idolatry. And this idolatry is damaging our society, our faith, our church, and our souls. There is no Messiah running for election this year. And uh, this is the most important election that ever was in the history of the planet. And by the way, the other party represents everything that is evil kind of rhetoric that we hear every day is hyperbolic language designed to frighten you so that you will vote one way or another. It is not true. This is not the most important election in the history of the planet or even of our country. The elections of 1797, 1860, 1864, and 1930 were all more critical, and no one could see that until well after the fact. We have enormous problems in our country, and no one and no party is going to be able to solve them in four or eight years, especially so long as we demonize and refuse to work with one another. Put not your trust in princes, the psalmist says. We should all remember that. It may surprise you that I do not know, or surprise you to know that I do not care how you vote or have voted this year. I will love and care for you regardless. I, however, I am your priest and a theologian and what I care about most deeply is how you are committed to Christ and the teachings of the Christian faith. I care about how you might have trimmed the requirements down to fulfill your political positions. I care about how you might be willing to turn a blind eye to the effects of policies on offer that could damage the truths of the gospel. I care about how you treat your fellow human beings who are children of God just like you, when they disagree with you and vote another way. What I care about most is your ultimate commitment, about your journey to being a saint with a capital S. Where is Christ in the list of things that are most important to you? Today is the feast of all saints. The great feast of the Christian calendar where we remember all those Christians whose lives and faith are models for us. Those for whom Christ was always their most important and ultimate commitment. These are saints with a capital S. They're not perfect, but they are always willing to measure their lives against the cross of Christ let us give thanks for their witness and follow their example. Amen.